Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is the episode of April 21st, 2022. Uh, welcome to episode 70. Maybe as a note for all the listeners, next week I will be co-hosting with Elizabeth Hicks. And, um, and then also as a note that we will not be covering uh, the result of the French election French presidential election in that week, but probably the week after, because I'll be traveling in the meantime, so we were pre-recording these episodes already. In this week's episode, I have an uh, interview with Jason Lusk. He's a distinguished professor and head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. He has a degree in food technology and a PhD in agricultural economics from Kansas State University. He was previously Regents Professor and Willard's Sparks Endowed Chair in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Oklahoma State University and Assistant Professor at Mississippi State and Purdue. He was interviewed by my colleagues Jan Lasowski and David Clement from Consumer Choice Radio, so this is a borrowed interview. If you want to hear more interviews like those, you can also check out Consumer Choice Radio, available on Podcasting 2.0 or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Also in this episode, sanctions on Russian caviar are overhyped, says a writer at Politico, and aviation once again under fire for its environmental impact. The European Union has sanctioned Russian caviar in a new move that is uh, being criticized, actually, by Politico for just being sort of performative. Um, the writer Politico says that the new ban on Russian caviar exports to the EU announced by Brussels in its latest sanctions package meant to punish Moscow for its Ukrainian invasion might be overhyped, our colleague Victor Jack writes in his report. And then Victor Jack says, it's a drop in the ocean. That's because Russia actually produces very little caviar for the European market, let alone globally. Although caviar was historically harvested from the Caspian Sea and sold by Russia and Iran, the overfishing of the sturgeon that lady eggs led to a global ban on wild fishing, prompting many sellers to develop their own in-house aquacultures instead. Here's Forbes. For example, the past 20 years, the Michelin-starred New York City restaurant Caviar Roos has become well known for spreads fit for an oligarch. But amid government bans on Russian imports, that reputation is now coming back to bite the family that owns the restaurant. It turns out they actually immigrated from Ukraine and their caviar never came from Russia. It comes from Germany. In fact, no caviar in America comes from Russia. Government sanctions against fish from Russia, like the salty chic fish eggs, are actually more performative than anything else. Caviar imported from Russia worldwide has dropped to a tiny fraction of the global volume it commanded during the 1990s. So overall, it seems that the uh, sanctions on Russia imposed here do not make a big splash in the ocean, so to say. The overall uh, sales of uh, Russian caviar have been 52 tons in 2019 compared to 688 tons produced worldwide, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is a UN body. Um, very interesting numbers there. Actually, it seems that most of the caviar now comes from Germany, at least for the European market. And so uh, so that's very interesting. Also, uh, in, in that field, a lot is uh, just being done uh, in-house. We don't fish these sturgeons anymore in the ocean. We actually, or the sea, uh, we just uh, we just go uh, and do it ourselves and, and raise these uh, fish ourselves. Uh, in that sanctions package, also being discussed now, the European Union's forthcoming sanctions on Russia uh, targeting banks and Sparebank is a uh, target there. Uh, Sparebank is the the biggest Russian bank that has already been sanctioned now by the United States. We've cut off Russia's largest bank, a bank that holds more than one third of Russia's banking assets by itself. Cut it off from the U.S. financial system. And today, we're also blocking four more major banks. 
That means every asset they have in America will be frozen. This includes VTB, the second largest bank in Russia, which has $250 billion in assets. As promised, we're also adding the names to the list of Russian elites and their family members that are sanctioning, that were sanctioned as well. Yes, yeah, so overall, Sparebank represents 37% of the Russian banking sector. And, um, and of course, the reason why Sparebank had not been sanctioned so far by the European Union is because, um, along with Gazprom Bank, it's actually the main channels for European countries to pay natural gas. And natural gas still being imported to to Europe as we speak. There's no uh, there's no ban on that uh, specifically. And of course, then the European Union wants to uh, wants to pay that, or European member states, I should rather say, want to pay that. And that goes through Sparebank and Gazprom Bank. So that, of course, remains difficult for the European Union to manage. The United States, of course, had the the opportunity to do that because of because there's no significant energy exports from Russia uh, to the United States. But of course, Europe basically, um, uh, if if it sanctions Sparebank, it implicitly says that we will also not get further Russian gas because the Russians not only wanted to be paid through their banks, but they also wanted to be paid in rubles, um, which apparently is rather new. So, uh, so that that all of that, uh, this applies to, to to oil as well, Russian oil, um, and so yeah, this will be uh, this will be a big decision to be made in the European Commission, in the European Council. Uh, will these energy sanctions exist? Um, we already talked about alternatives to that. Uh, Lithuania has uh, has already phased out uh, Russian natural gas, now has imposed a ban because it is able to do that. In uh, in episode uh, 68 of this podcast, so this is about two weeks ago, we talked to Ritis Valunas, um, who is in charge of running LNG terminals in uh, the city of Klaipeda and all around Lithuania. And Lithuania actually also does export to Estonia and Latvia and even has the ability to export to, to Poland, as far as I remember. So, so, so that infrastructure is necessary, but of course that infrastructure is not necessarily there. I see that Germany is now uh, looking at floating LNG terminals, um, but there again the infrastructure is probably not up to speed. I, I see it in a way that Germany is probably ramping up infrastructure, but doesn't want to announce anything specific yet. Um, but yeah, in any way it's going to be an interesting look at how the European Council will react on this. Ultimately it's probably for the best if we get out of Russian energy, but it's also about not completely paralyzing industries that are vital for the economy to run. Um, we can all blame most of this on, on, on decisions made in the past, but of course you can't go back to the past and change those. So it's about how can we speed this up as quick as possible and allowing entrepreneurs to find the, the solutions uh, to get out of Russian energy altogether. <laughs> Next up, uh, aviation being criticized for not just its CO2 emissions, clean mobility, NGO, transport and environment. Oh, God, these people. <laughs> they are renewing their push to get non-CO2 climate impacts of aviation included in the EU's Fit for 55 package. The Fit for 55 package, by the way, sounds like a, uh, sounds like a retirement plan, but actually is, uh, is the climate uh, plan, uh, CO2 reduction targets plan of the European Commission. Um, and, and so here the NGO is releasing a, a, a briefing uh, on the part which is called Refuel Aviation. Um, this one aims to introduce green jet fuel uh, mandates by 2025, where we're still in the early stage of green jet fuel, even though it is a technically feasible possibility, the, the infrastructure needed to make this happen is still in the early stages. 
Uh, the EU's Aviation Safety Agency, EASA, released a report in 2020, which said that the climate impact of aviation could be up to three times greater than previously estimated if it includes non-CO2 gases and matter that aircraft engines emit, such as nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, water and soot particles. Since then, environmentalists have been pressuring the Commission to legislate on the issue, but the EU executive has been reluctant to introduce specific measures on non-CO2 impact, writes Politico. Now, um, I think CO2 impact is, of course, by far the largest. Others should be taken into account uh, as well as to trying to solve this problem. But ultimately, and, and I think we had this conversation before and I've written about this, um, the solution that has been attempted by banning domestic flight connections uh, by um, putting higher taxes. I know the Netherlands, I think three, four years ago, was trying to lobby for this seven euro tax on additional eco tax on every flight departing from a European airport, um, which, by the way, it, the Netherlands itself already has. It was just trying to get other member states to adopt the same. Um, that is actually counterproductive because what we see right now is that people who fly business, people who fly for work purposes, people who fly intercontinental, Seven euros is not going to make a difference, but it does make a difference for low-income consumers who might not might choose not to to uh, uh, to do a connecting flight to get to the destination because it would add um, uh, twenty-eight euros on a connecting airport return flight. And for some people, actually, twenty-eight euros is a bit of money, uh, even though uh, many of the policy analysts might not necessarily realize that, or the politicians. And so, what we do there is that the low-income consumers fly less. What we see as a result is that then you have overall less R&D availability because of less profits for companies to reinvest. If you look at new aircraft models, we already see a 30% reduction in kerosene use. And that is because the aviation industry had the resources to buy newer planes because ultimately the airlines uh, don't have a vested interest in trying to use as much kerosene as possible. Quite the opposite. The airlines want to use as little kerosene as possible. And that is uh, that is an important factor here, is that airlines want to reduce the overall uh, effects they have. Now, with green fuels, the question is going to be what are the exact prices? Because we shouldn't expect airlines to do charity on behalf of... Um, of whatever environmental uh, reduction target the government has planned. If the government wants them to use that, well, um, uh, it should make it possible for those fuels to be cheaper by reducing taxes and making it easier to import fuels from all over the world wherever necessary. Um, but I think that's going to be a conversation that we're going to keep having no matter what. It seems that if it's COVID, if it's a war, the environmental impacts of aviation will always be on the table, even though many European countries just don't have the infrastructure. You know, look, if I want to go from Amsterdam to Paris, I know I can use a, a fast train. Um, but not all EU member states have that connection. If you're trying to connect from the, the north of, of, of Slovakia to the south of Slovakia, there are mountains in between and the tunnels have not been built. So I'm not quite sure how you expect people to... You, you provide them with only one method, like one realistic method of transport because you don't want to drive all the way around. Um, but then but then you also want to tax them for it. And, and especially in member states that are on the lowest income spectrum, that will have the hardest effect because these taxes are, are regressive. They hit uh, lower income households more than, than, than higher income households. 
So um, the social cohesion part of that is completely undermined by the expectation that we want to do a reduction of, of CO2 emissions, and it shouldn't come at any cost, in my view. But now let's move to the interview of this week. My colleagues Jalosowski and David Clement at Consumer Choice Radio talked to Jason Lusk a few weeks ago, distinguished professor and head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. They talked about the importance of herbicides. So listen in to the interview. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, syndicated on the radio uh, and right there on your podcast app. So we're speaking with Professor Jason Lusk. He is the Distinguished Professor and Head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. Uh, You can find his website and blog where he is very active over there on jasonlusk.com, J-A-Y-S-O-N Lusk, and also on Twitter under the same name. So, Professor Lusk, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, happy to chat. So the couple of things that we wanted to talk to you about, obviously, um, food inflation is big on the mind. I know you've been doing a little bit of work there. Uh, there's a lot of questions about food supplies internationally with everything that we see happening uh, with Ukraine and all of the rest. Um, if you could, just sort of what's, uh, what's the main cause right now of what we're seeing with food inflation and, and really how are consumers feeling about it? Well, there's not a single cause, but, but many causes that are coming together to contribute to the inflation that we're seeing. I kind of think of three interrelated buckets of drivers of the food price increases we're seeing. One is just general macroeconomic environment. So there's just a lot more money in the economy. If you look at at just money supply, the amount of money that's sloshing around in the economy, that increased sharply at the end of the pan at, at the onset mm-hmm. of the pandemic, largely in response to many of the government policies that um, you know aimed to, to shore up employment and consumer household budgets. But you know when you can't when you can't get out and travel or go out and eat, that money tends to flow into people's bank accounts. And indeed, you could see at an aggregate level at least a big increase in savings rates. So part of what's going on is just you know there's there's more money, the same amount of goods, and so that's just a classic definition of inflation. The, the value of each dollar falls when there's more dollars floating around, and so it takes more dollars to buy to buy stuff. So that's one answer, but that that's not unique to food. That's sort of a broad uh, explanation for price rises we've seen across the economy. The piece that it sort of helps dovetail a bit into food is that that's helps spikes, you know, generate extra demand. So consumers wanting more, willing to pay for more. You see that, you know, right now in cars and used cars, for example. But it's also we're, we're seeing it in food, Fit spending on food, both food at home and food away from home, is both up quite a bit since the uh, start of the pandemic, even though there were some initial disruptions. Um, and so people are just, you know, they're just buying more food, willing to spend more on food, less price sensitive than they were uh, previously. And I think that's partly related to these income stories that I've mentioned before. Uh, the other part of the demand picture is international demand. So particularly for, for meat products. So the meat, meat prices have been, um, the increases in meat price explain a big chunk of the increase in overall food prices. And some of that's being driven by really strong demand from some of our international trading partners. So the U.S. is a net exporter of agricultural products and uh, particularly countries like China. Um, there was a surge in, in buying of, say, U.S. beef, which pulled up prices here at home. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, there's all the cost and supply side 
factors that that come in and and some of that's labor related wages are up um, part of that's part uh, 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 you know related to this great resignation so people are the food processors food manufacturers food distributors having a hard time finding enough employees they've been increasing wages to try to get employees to show up and those wages get reflected in the in the food prices we see uh, in addition to the wages, just cost of ingredients. So agricultural commodity prices have been really uh, strong throughout the course of the last year. Some of that's due to weather issues. Some of it here more recently is due to events uh, around the world in UK, Ukraine and Russia. Um, and then, you know, fuel transportation has, has made, um, you know, transport the, the increased fuel, fuel costs have made transportation more expensive. But even before the, the Ukraine situation there was uh, some real backlogs in in trucking and i think across the board talking to people in food processing and manufacturing uh, they've had a hard time getting just getting people to show up to pick up loads and take them from one place to another so that's been a real challenge so you know again to kind of recap there's not a a single explanation but rather a mm -hmm. co combination of of forces have come together to cause increase rate increases in food prices at a rate that we really haven't seen since the late seventies and early eighties. So I have a, a follow-up question for you on that, because it's something that we've seen raised is, is herbicides, herbicide shortages or pushes to limit their use. Um, what does that mean in practice for farmers? How important are herbicides for farmers? Will that, um, put additional pressure upwards on pricing? Um, the answer is yes. So I think one one thing to keep in mind is I think some people get a little uneasy when they think about herbicides being used in agriculture. Um, you know, are they safe, uh, whatnot? Uh, maybe a view that I see articles sometimes that farmers are, you know, dousing their fields with uh, herbicides. Um, this, is a, this is a cost for farmers. That's an expensive mm -hmm. input. And so farmers don't want to use herbicides unless they, they provide a benefit to them. So there are a couple of benefits they provide. One is they increase the yields so they can produce more, more, more food, more crop on a given amount of land. Um, and that increase in production, that increase in yield is, is more than enough to offset the cost of that fertilizer. Otherwise, they would do it. One of the other things, and this is maybe a bit counterintuitive for some folks, that does have some environmental benefits. So low-till and no-till farming technologies means that you know, you're not running a, a tractor over the field and disturbing the soil, which can result in soil runoff and other things. Those practices become more um, you know, become easier for farmers to adopt those no-till practices if they have access to certain herbicides that can control weeds, because that's the reason the farmers are plowing those fields often is to control weeds. And if they can control mm -hmm. weeds in other ways, then it enables them to adopt these these production practices that do have some environmental benefits. And you're right. So there there have been some some significant price increases in a lot of agricultural inputs, herbicides included. One of the big controversies these days uh, is around the use of uh, glyphosate, which is you know the brand name that people know of is probably Roundup. There have been some mm -hmm. lawsuits. Some food companies have have made pledges to move away from that. Um, you know, I guess all good except the question is what are farmers going to use instead because mm -hmm. it's not like they're not not going to use a herbicide so if they're not going to use uh roundup what what's the alternative and unfortunately i think many times the alternatives 
are either less effective or, or slightly higher levels of toxicity. I mean, all these have to be approved by the EPA and USDA to begin with so that they're, they're safe for human consumption. But um, glyphosate is a class of, of herbicides that you know, was really much safer than many of the ones that, that came before them. So um, you know, I understand people's concerns. And I think we always wanna evaluate the risks, but I think some of the, the paranoia around um, that particular herbicide didn't consider what the alternatives were. <laughs> What's going to yeah, come in course. if you don't use that one instead? Yeah, and I think um, I mean one one thing that we've often seen in our work is that we're going against uh, many different non-governmental organizations, nonprofits that are putting up a lot of huff and puff about many of these issues, and particularly around herbicides, around pesticides. We've just seen that there's little to no connection to reality of how it actually works for farmers. And unfortunately, a lot of misinformation. And like you just said, what are kind of any alternatives uh, that that would exist? Because one thing that we're very bullish on is, is technological progress and things getting better, more tools available for farmers. And all of that helps consumers because it helps prices go down. It helps us to have more adequate supplies, more yields, all of the rest. You know, if, if we had like a sort of a world without these what would that look like? And would there be any tools? You know, is this something to where we could use masses of ladybugs or anything like this? Or is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, I work at a, a agricultural research university, so a big fan of investments in science and technology, and, and but more broadly, just entrepreneurship and innovation in the food and ag space. You know, we, we have big, big food problems. I don't disagree with that at all. You know, climate change, I already mentioned soil erosion, sometimes nitrogen and water. Um, and so the question really is how, how are we gonna make headway dealing with those problems? And I think imagining some utopia where there are no insects or no weeds is not particularly helpful or, or magical thinking that of course we, uh, you know, that there are just production practices out there that are you know, easy to adopt and that are costless to adopt for consumers that they control those problems. There's just no simple solution. So I, I do think about trying to invest in that science and innovation as a way to deal with those. You mentioned ladybugs. Yeah, actually, there, there's a whole active area of research around integrated pest management, trying to use, you know, quote, quote unquote, natural, even though nothing really all that natural about it, but, um, you know, competitive insects to control some of those. GMOs uh, was a big buzzword that, you know, does create mm -hmm. a lot of controversy sometime, but, but, you know, a GMO is not a single thing. It's just a tool um, yep. that can be used for a variety of different things. One of the ways in which it's used is to, um, you know, enable certain plants to produce its own pesticide. So um, BT corn, BT refers to uh, a compound that, that, you know, when, a, when corn is given the genes to produce it, it can, it can produce this BT and, and it, that, that, you know, protects that corn against certain insects that want to eat it. Incidentally, I think, you know, one thing that might be useful to know, BT is an, is an organic compound. It's approved, it's an approved pesticide in organic production, but somehow people get really upset about it when, you know, the plant's producing itself versus when a farmer's just spraying it on the field, but it's the same chemical compound, has the same effect. Actually, it's not toxic to humans, but it is toxic to, uh, you know, certain kinds of bugs that want to eat mm -hmm. eat those plants. So that's an example of, of a kind of innovation to control for uh, insects in a way that actually has significantly reduced insecticide applications. Uh, so on the question of yields, because I think it's important always to frame what this looks like in terms of the alternative. 
Um, our colleague Bill Wirtz has done some work on this, and he's described some of the pressures from NGOs as essentially pushing for what would be a giant step backwards in terms of yields. But I'm curious if you could walk our listeners through what exactly some of that looks like in terms of the reduction in yields for basic crops if we were to adopt some of these anti-GMO policies or maybe cave to some of what I would view as the hysteria over herbicides and things like that. Yeah, I think one way to get a sense of the magnitudes here, you know, we could talk about how many bushels per acre, but I don't think people have a good sense of what that means. Sure. One one way to think about it is, is if we backed up, you know, about 40 years or so and said, did a little thought experiment, like, let's imagine we want to enjoy the amount of corn, let's say that we actually produced and enjoyed last year, but we wanted to do that using, you know, 1950s or 1960s yield how many more acres of corn would we need to plant? And the answer is we need to like double or triple the amount of acreage, you know, planted to corn. Um, but, you know, I've done those same, you could do the similar thought experiments in all, all facets of agriculture with, uh, you know, you know, dairy or cattle or, or chickens. I um, mean, you get similar kinds of answers that you, you know, you, we would need in the case of chickens, if we went back to the, to yield, like, you know, amount of, amount of pounds per bird, if we went back even to the 1980s, We'd need a, a billion more chickens to meet the the current demand that we have there. So you think about what that means, you know, doubling the acreage of corn or having a billion more chickens and all the environmental demands that would create for the water, for the for the land, for the pesticides, you know, pesticides for the uh, fertilizer. And those things we're able to save. Like we don't need those anymore because we found ways to be more productive to produce more corn from each acre to get each animal to put on a little more weight a little faster. Uh, it's improved genetics. Um, in the case of animals, it's improved diets, improved housing. In the case of plants, um, it's also you know genetics, but also management practices and access to certain herbicides and otherwise. It, all those innovations, I think, come together to really produce a, a, a food world that is, is actually quite uh, contrary to most people's perceptions of it, we eat better, we eat more, we eat more affordably than we ever have, not only in uh, in comparison to other parts of the world, but in comparison to human history. Food has never really been more abundant and more affordable than it has been today. And I think that's in large part thanks to the fact that we, we have messed with nature. We didn't just take the world the way it was. We found uh, ways to improve upon it. And I think we're a lot better off for it. We certainly could not support the, the, the population size that we have today with the kind of agricultural practices that, that were in use in the 1940s and 50s. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Jason Lusk on Twitter at Jason Lusk and follow the Consumer Choice Radio program as well at Consumer C Radio. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody